0: Welcome to the Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer, entrepreneur, community builder, and a firm believer that every one of us can go after the stories we've always wanted to tell with the right support, encouragement, and structure. I'm on a mission to help women's storytellers everywhere break into and thrive in the travel media space. If you're ready to ditch your fears to the side, grow your knowledge and confidence, and publish your travel stories, you're in the right place. Let's go! Today on the podcast, we're doing something interesting and new. Over the years of being in this career, I've received so many questions about the various aspects of being a travel journalist, photographer, and writer. So I decided to share some of these questions and my answers with you on the podcast, in a two-part Q&A series. And in this first part, I'm going to address questions on the craft of being a travel journalist. And in the second part, out next week, we'll discuss questions on the business of being a travel journalist. These questions have come in from all sides of our growing community, from the people who follow me or Travel Media Lab on Instagram the attendees of my various workshops and events, our private Facebook group called Travel Media Lab, where we communicate about uh, this path as well. And of course, our very own Travel Media Lab community members, such as our past class students and our current Circle members. And huge thank you to everyone who has contributed questions over the years that I'm going to address in this two-part series. If you enjoyed today's episode, if you've wondered about the questions you're about to hear yourself, then chances are you'll want to attend our info session for my upcoming travel journalism program. This program called Intro to Travel Journalism is enrolling soon. And this year, we're doing something different with it. We're turning it into a six-month program during which students will have access to our amazing support inside the Circle membership community. So for people who will be joining our class this year, they will get to experience the best of both. The foundation of travel journalism knowledge that I give in the class plus the ongoing support inside our membership for them to actually apply all of that knowledge and, most importantly, stick to it. Because the people who apply the knowledge and stick to it, they get results. And they've been published in so many wonderful publications already. I will be holding a free info session about this program on Friday, may 6th at 10 a.m eastern time so if getting your travel stories published is something you dream about don't wait visit travelmedialab.com slash info session to register today and see if this six-month program is right for you all right now on to this episode I am so excited to dig into this very experimental uh, way to record and share these episodes with you. So thank you so much for listening today. So the format for this episode on the craft of being a travel journalism and the following one on the business side of it uh, will be the same. We have 10 questions that people from our community um, have submitted uh, to me or have asked me over the years. And I'm going to answer each of these questions one by one. And just a note here that uh, these Questions have come in from people who are interested in or already are on the path to being photographers and writers. So you will see sort of different aspects of it. Some questions will be about photography. Some questions will be about writing. Many of these questions are about pitching. Understandably, because pitching is such a such an area of uh, let's say concern to many. And by the way, pitching is something that we spend a lot of time inside our program so that when people come out uh, on the other side of it, they have a much better understanding of it, they're much less afraid of it, and they do a much better job of it. All right, so 10 questions. I'm going to read each one of these out, and then I'm going to answer them one by one. Let's go. First question. How do you start making travel photos? How do you know what to photograph before even uh, reaching out to someone with your work? So... This question is an interesting one, and I've chose to start with this question because in many ways, this is the foundation of everything, everything that you're going to do in travel journalism, from my perspective. Whether it's a question about how do you start making travel photos, or it's a question of how do you start writing travel stories, the answer for me is the same. How do you know what to, what to photograph? How do you know what to write about? Well, it's about your own passion. It's about your own curiosity. It's about what interests you. Because when you write about what interests you, when you take images of what interests you, these will be much better stories and your passion and your curiosity for the subject will show through. So I often or actually always advise anyone who is asking me about how do I start? Where do I start? I advise them to start with themselves and to build a very good foundation of understanding what is it that you want. What kind of work do you want to produce? What kind of stories do you want to tell? Um, that is a huge foundation because that is going to help you start building a niche, your own very specific niche in this uh, space, which is important because the sooner you can uh, formulate your own niche, the, the the space in which you want to live, let's say the the type of work that you want to produce. The sooner you can start doing that, the the easier it will be for you to carve your own space in this industry. So that's where I would start. If you're asking me, how do you know what to photograph before you even reach out to someone with your work? Start with what interests you. Start looking at other people's work through that lens. You know, start looking at magazines, start looking at other photography and noticing what in that work that you're looking at, what drives, like what connects with you? Uh, what are you drawn to? And and start making some conclusions about that. Maybe you want to do stories about food. Maybe you really, you know, love stories about food. And so maybe that's where you start. Or maybe it's architecture. Or maybe it's, uh, you know, sustainable travel. Whatever it is, that's where you start. You start with yourself and your own passion and your own curiosity uh, about the world. Question number two, what are the two types of lens that 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 you think every photographer should have, and what lens do you use most in your work? Well, that is actually a quite broad question because every photographer should have the type of lens that is best suited to the type of work that they do, actually, because, you know, lenses have uh, different goals, different lens work better for different types of photography. So it really depends on what kind of work that individual photographer does. For me and for the travel space in general, what I have found is that a, a really solid zoom lens, a lens that can go quite wide, in, up quite wide, but then also zoom, zoom in quite far, is enough in many cases, is enough for the type of photography that I do, which is a travel photography. And what is travel photography, by the way? Well, we'll, we'll touch on this in the following question. But uh, yeah, I think, I think one zoom lens, one good zoom lens uh, would be enough for travel photography and sometimes a portrait lens as well. But it kind of depends on, you know, on assignments. Uh, but if I have a big assignment coming up, for example, I most of the time I just travel with one lens, the, the zoom lens that I mentioned before. And sometimes when I have a big assignment coming up, I will bring my second lens, which is a portrait lens. So, to answer, what lens do I use most in my work? It's two. It's one is the Sony Zeiss uh, 24 to 70 millimeters zoom lens. And then the second one is Sony's eyes fifty-five millimeter uh prime lens. And one of them, the zoom I use for capturing all kinds of elements of the travel photography. And then the the 55mm millimeter, millimeter prime, I use that for portraits mostly. And with those two lenses, I have basically covered all the needs that I have while I'm out there traveling. And I want to travel light. I don't I don't want to carry too many lenses. So that's why I think these two are are just enough. Question number three, when photographing on assignment, do you try to keep to one particular visual style or not? I love this question. And the answer is yes and no in the same time. And here's why. Because I believe that your visual style is not something that you consciously try to keep to. Your visual style is something that you produce over time because you're, uh, you're drawn to particular kinds of images yourself. So, for example, for me, over time, I have realized that visually my style is filled with light, you know, golden light type moments, uh, very airy, very light, very spacious feeling. That's my visual style not necessarily because when i started in this journey i said well i want my images to be light and airy and spacious and golden light no it's just because over time as i look at my work i see that this is what i'm drawn to so i understand that this is where my sort of visual passion lies and and that's that's what i tend to produce but when i'm out there on assignments you know i i i guess you could say that i do keep to that because if if it's let's say 8 p.m. at night and it's dark out, I'm not going to go out and shoot uh, at 8 pm at night because that's just not my style right night photography i don't do night photography uh, but you will find me out there during golden hour of course whether it's you know sunrise or sunset because that's the light that i love to see in my images and that's when i will be shooting however it doesn't always work right for example if you're on assignment with a, with a tourism board and tourism board has a usually has a very set uh, schedule on on a trip and you know there are other people there it's not just you and sometimes you can't shoot at the best conditions at the best light conditions you try to and and of course you have these conversations with the tourism board and say hey you know i'm here on a photography assignment i need my light i i need to be here and here at let's say 5 p.m when the sun is setting but it's not always possible and so then we sort of have to work with what we've got and that's where i think the skill in the craft shows that, you know, if if you only had to photograph in the best light conditions, then of course, it's easy to come up with great images, but it's harder to do that when light conditions are not ideal. And so sometimes we have to work uh, with that. So it's sort of a long winded way, I guess, to answer this question. So do I try to keep to one particular visual style Not necessarily, but over time, I have figured out that I do have a particular visual style, which is, again, light-filled, airy, spacious images. Um, And I do try to stick to that, but sometimes it's not possible when you're photographing uh, something in gloomy weather. Although, let me tell you, gloomy weather is... Amazing for capturing people because that's just exactly the soft, diffused light that you want on your subject when you're photographing them. All right, uh, moving on to question number four How would you go about finding and contacting the right people and institutions in this career? So, this is, I think, another broad question because it depends on what we mean by the right people and the right institutions. I'm going to sort of look at it at a couple of different lenses. So if you're talking about the right people being the editors at the magazines that you want to work with, then actually nowadays it's quite easy, meaning that the magazines are becoming much and much more accessible now than they were five, six years ago when I was starting out. Back then, it was very difficult to know who the right people are, what their email addresses are, what do they want in their stories and in their magazines because they never published pitching guidelines. Nowadays, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, you guys have probably heard me say this, but I'm just so amazed and I welcome this shift of magazines, more and more magazines putting up their pitching and submission guidelines up for everyone to see. Places like Condé Nast Traveler, places like Afar magazine, which used to be such uh, dark boxes or, you know, you just never, you, you just didn't know. If you weren't already part of that club, you didn't know what they wanted in their stories, what they were looking for, who the people, who were the right people to contact. And it's changing now. So all you have to do now is to Google how to pitch Afar magazine, how to pitch Condé Nast Traveler. And, you know, almost the first link will be their own submission guidelines. And they give you a map. They give you a blueprint to follow. They tell you exactly what they want. They tell you exactly who to contact. They even put in the email address. So it's just wonderful. So that's one approach or one lens to look at it through. The other lens, if you're talking about the right people and institutions being, let's say, tourism boards, let's say, travel brands, perhaps, that you want to work with, one of the best ways to find those people is at conferences, travel conferences, travel media conferences, where they already congregate, and that's exactly where they already are going to meet people like you who want to contact them, right? And I won't say much more on the subject here because just one episode ago, last week, we had our amazing community member, Hannah Foster-Rowe, who is now a travel writer who's been published in so many wonderful magazines. She came on the podcast and she talked extensively about this experience of going to a travel media conference. It was her first one and, you know, she shared a lot of insights uh, with us there. So go check out that episode to see how you would go about doing that. All right. Question number five. Would you normally pitch before you go or is it easier to pitch after? Great question. And that is a question that I get often. And that is also something that I talk about often. So you might have heard me talk about this before. But I recommend everyone to pitch after you come back from a trip. And in fact, a lot of editors don't like it when you pitch them before you go. They want you to go, they want you to get the experience, and then they want you to pitch. And there are many reasons for why that is. One of the reasons why I recommend that you pitch after is that your story and your pitch is actually going to be much better after you've gone and you've done the experience that you're talking about. Sometimes our angles shift. Sometimes our ideas change. Sometimes we think we might experience one thing when we go, but after we do it, we understand that it was actually something different. So that happens as well. Especially if you're pitching somebody for the first time, if you're cold pitching somebody, I would not recommend you do it for, a, for something that hasn't happened yet. Now, there is a, an exception to this that if you already have a great relationship with an editor, you've done some work together, they trust you, they know sort of what you can deliver. Then you can have those conversations. And I have for sure, you know, I've sent emails to editors saying, Hey, I'm going here in a month. I I am planning to do this kind of story. This is sort of what, what it's going to look like. Would you be interested in this? And then they give me a tentative yes, because again, they still want to want me to go and produce the story. And then, and then we talk in more detail, right? But if you have that relationship with somebody already, then it's absolutely okay to to approach them. But I wouldn't do that for a first time ever. You're trying to break into a new publication. And by the way, the, th- the one thing to never, ever, ever do, and this is not coming from me. This is coming from editors that I've spoken with over the years. This is a huge pet peeve. And, and they are getting emails like this, believe it or not. Hey, editor X, I'm going to New York next week. Is there anything you'd like me to cover? That is just a never a good idea because in this situation, what you're doing is you're asking the editor to do your own job for you. You are the one who should come up with a story in New York and pitch that story to a magazine and make sure that it's well-crafted and well, you know, well-suited. But in this situation, you're asking them to see what kind of story they would want from New York that they could then perhaps assign to you, right? That's that's never a good idea. And again, that is all with a caveat that it all depends on your relationship with the publication, with the editor the better the relationship, the deeper the relationship, the more informal these conversations can get. Sometimes they will send you an email and say, hey, we need a story on Egypt. What do you have? Right? It just all depends on that relationship. But hopefully my long-winded Hi, dear listeners, I'm interrupting myself here to remind you that on Friday, May 6th at 10 a.m. Eastern, I'm going to run a free info session for Intro to Travel Journalism, our six-month program that gives you the blueprint for getting your travel stories published and kickstarting your travel journalism career. Go to TravelMediaLab.com slash info session to register today. All right, back to this episode. That answer here makes sense. Next question. And this one is coming from our past class student and current circle community member, Kim. Thank you so much, Kim, for submitting this question. Uh, what does a pitch look like? How is it structured for best results? So we go into a enormous detail into the pitching process inside our program, uh, Intro to Travel Journalism, that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode and we actually look at the actual pitches that i send out and we take them apart and you know look at the you know the intro the the paragraph itself everything everything but i would say here that the pitch is your best first impression and it's your best foot forward it should be your best foot forward when you're approaching a publication because a pitch is something that they will judge the editor will judge your work upon right and your writing abilities and your skills and so a pitch has to accomplish two jobs, in my opinion. It has to communicate the idea that you're proposing, and it has to be well well written in your voice, because again, that's how they judge if they would like that voice in their magazine. Now, when it comes to making sure that you communicate a well-crafted idea, this is where I think a lot of people overlook the importance of that part, you have to sort of put yourself in that editor's shoes and think, would I want this in my magazine and why? Would I want this in my magazine and why? That's the question that they go through when they receive these pitches, right? So if you can answer that question to them, yes, you want this in your magazine and here is why, then then there, then there you go. Then your, your pitch is almost there, right? And how do you do that? Well, again, we go back to the submission guidelines. They lay out everything in such a great detail. BBC Travel is an excellent example of that. They take it apart so much and we'll link to the BBC travel submission guidelines here so you guys can take a look but they take it apart so so well and they give you examples of photography pitches that you might want to send and uh, writing stories pitches that you might want to send and the best way to ensure that you get the best results with your pitches is to follow the pitching guidelines and if you want to know more about pitching process and everything like that then look into the program that we have and the info session that's coming up as well. All right. Question number seven, do you pitch to individual editors at one time or do you pitch to several at once? And someone else has asked a similar question. Can you pitch the same story to various publications? So it's interesting, this question, because my opinion is that, no, I don't recommend pitching the same pitching. Actually, sorry, this, this is two questions. So this is two slightly different questions. So we're going to address each one of them. So the first question is, do you pitch to individual editors at a magazine at one time, or do you pitch several editors at the same magazine at once? For this, the, the answer is very clear. You pitch to individual editors at a time. And I, I've spoken to editors over the years, and that's also what they say. They don't like it when you send the same pitch to several editors at the same publication. And again, we go back to empathy and, and putting ourselves into their shoes. They are busy people. They they are very, they, their inboxes are very crowded. So when you're sending the same pitch to two different editors, first of all, you're you're creating sort of a confusion, right? Well, which one is going to take a look at it? They're both busy and now there's sort of this weird awkwardness of, well, which one They don't like it, okay? So just don't do it. Just send it to one editor at a time at a publication. And again, if you look at the submission guidelines, most of the time, it will clearly say this editor is responsible for this section. This editor is responsible for that section. So you don't even have to guess, right? You will already know which editor is the appropriate one for you. And then the second question here was, can you pitch the same story to various publications at the same time? So this is where it gets a little bit interesting, because my opinion is that, no, I don't recommend it, actually. I don't recommend sending the same story out to two different publications or three at the same time to see which one picks it up first. And there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, you might find yourself in a pickle where, let's say, you pitched it somewhere and pitched it somewhere else, and then both publications take it at the same time. So then what do you do? And I've actually had the situation happen to me. And that's after that happened, I said to myself, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pitch the same thing to various publications at the same time. And by the way, the way I came out of that situation is that the one of the publications got the original pitch. And then the second publication got a slightly modified angle that was different enough that I was able to make it work for both of them. But I I didn't like the situation and I said, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. However, so, so that's reason number one. And the second reason why I don't recommend it is that because you probably when you pitch a story, especially if it's a story that's very close to your heart you probably know where you want the story to end up, right? You probably have some sort of a dream dream publication where you want to publish it. So, you know, the way I approach it is I, I pitch it to my dream publication first. And then if that doesn't work out, then I sort of go down the list, right? So in that scenario, you would want to sort of Follow the order and pitch it first somewhere where you really want it to be and then pitch it elsewhere if that doesn't work. However, we recently had a conversation with an amazing travel writer, Jessica Pointevian, and her episode is going to come out soon. And it's a really excellent episode, so I, I'm, I'm really, I really look forward to it. And she, we discussed this very topic, pitching to multiple publications at once, and she had a very different take on it, which I absolutely loved, actually. She said, yes, I'm pitching the same story to multiple publications at once. She said, I am not beholden to any one editor or any one publication. Whoever wants it first is going to get it. Because I'm a freelancer and I need to be hustling to to get my stories out there. And I have the power and I control my ideas. So, you know, I am absolutely okay with sending my pitches out to multiple publications at the same time. And I loved that perspective, you know? I think there's actually nothing wrong with that. It's amazing. So I think as with so many things in this career, it's not black and white, right? It's not black and white. It all depends on your own sort of personal level of comfort and how you want to approach this pitching path, okay? So there you go. You just heard two different perspectives on this, so you decide which one you want to take yourself. All right, another question from our dear uh, Circle member, Kim. How often should you follow up with an editor without being annoying? (laughs) I love this question. So my rule of thumb is you follow up three times and then you move on. And yeah. And if you haven't heard from them three times in a row, then you move on somewhere else. However, this is also hard because sometimes they just drop the ball on you. The editors drop the ball on you. And then months later they come back and they say, well, I wanted the story. You know, that, always, that sometimes happens too. So it also depends on how deeply you want it in this publication, right? If If you're, let's say, pitching New York Times travel and you followed up with them three times and you haven't heard from them, maybe you follow up two more times in another month or something, right? So it also depends on how much do you want it in this publication. Without being annoying part, it's all about, I think, of of how you do it, right? You can follow up with them. You know, you pitch them on Monday and then you follow up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Well, that's very annoying, right? But if you, you pitch them, you followed up in a week or two, haven't heard back, followed up again in a week or two, haven't heard back, followed up again in a week or two, haven't heard back, right? So so there's different ways to do it. And, and that's where I think the annoying part comes. But again, I think you guys already know this. My favorite answer is it depends. It really depends on how much do you want this story in this publication. So maybe even more than three times to follow up would be good in some cases. But a general rule of thumb is three times to follow up. And if you haven't heard back, you move on. Because again, you've got to place that story somewhere else, right? All right. Question number nine. If you are rejected for a pitch, do you continue with the piece anyway and seek seek to get it picked up retrospectively? If you are rejected for a pitch, do you continue with the piece anyway and seek to get it picked up re- retrospectively? So I think if I understand this question correctly, it's asking if you get if your pitch gets rejected, do you write the story anyway and then try to find a home for it somewhere? I think that's what I'm understanding from this question, and the answer to that is no don't write the story. Don't write the story until the pitch gets accepted somewhere. And that's what I always recommend because I don't want you to put in time and effort into writing a piece that hasn't been picked up anywhere. Okay. If you're rejected, if your pitch is rejected, what you need to do is you need to take that pitch somewhere else and keep taking that pitch somewhere else until you get a yes. And when you do get a yes, then you write the story okay that's uh, that's what i recommend all right finally uh the last question of this series of uh, q a on the craft of being a travel photographer and writer and journalist uh the last question is it is much easier to write when one is a native english speaker i doubt any editor will hire a non-english native speaker will they well, my friend, I have a good news for you because I am not a nat- native English speaker as well. English is my third language actually, and you can absolutely do it. You can absolutely do it. And I wanted to end this conversation, this Q&A with this question because to me, this question is an example of limitations that we put on ourselves. It's the limitations that we put on ourselves when we think, "Well, an editor won't hire a non-English speaker. An editor won't hire somebody who hasn't been published before. Uh, a a Conde traveler will never want to work with someone who hasn't been published before, right? These are all the things that come to our heads. I know you guys have, have experienced these. I know you've taught these things. And these are all examples of limitations we put on ourselves because we're afraid, because we think for whatever reason, it's not for us. We're, we don't deserve it uh, for whatever reason. And I just want to say that you can accomplish in this career and in any career as much or as little as you can imagine and give yourself permission to accomplish, okay? Now, of course, there's caveats with everything. You got to have the right support. You got to have the right structure, you got to have the knowledge, right? You you have to kind of know what, what you're getting into. And the good news that you can find all of those things. And I'm not even right now talking about our program, okay? I'm not even talking about our program. There are so many different things that exist on the internet nowadays where you can find a lot of support. You can find that knowledge. You can find blog posts. You can find ep- podcast episodes like this one that give you some of that knowledge, right? You can find YouTube videos, Uh, you can find whole communities of people who are trying to do the same thing that you are. So with that, I, I absolutely wholeheartedly believe that with the right structure, with the right support, with the right knowledge you can do anything. We don't have to go far. Look at our students, look at our amazing circle members. They've been published in Condé Nast Traveler, in Time Magazine, in Huffington Post, in other places. Without any prior work in this industry, without any bylines, without any articles, they have published their stories. And I'm so, so, so proud of them. So again, you can accomplish as little or as much as what you can imagine. So please don't put any of these expecta- uh, limitations on yourself. Editors will hire non-English, na- non-native English speakers. Absolutely. Why not? Your perspective is valuable. The more diverse your perspective, the better, right? So the, the answer to that is a resounding yes, they will hire a non-native uh, English speaker. Okay. Well, I hope this uh, was informative to you and I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. And we will be back next week with a conversation on the business side of being a travel journalist. Thank you so much for listening. Did you hear something that resonated with you in our episode today? Maybe you're listening in and you're like, oh, I've had this question before. I've felt that. I've wanted that. If you've resonated with what I had to share today, then maybe our reimagined intro to travel journalism program is right for you. If you're interested in learning more about the program and how we plan to support you for six months inside our membership, The Circle, join us for a free info session on Friday May 6th at 10 a.m. Eastern where I'll take you behind the scenes of this program and show you the blueprint for getting your travel stories published and kickstarting your own travel journalism career. Go to travelmedialab.com info session to register today. And thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week where we will dig into the questions about the business aspect of being a travel journalist.